anyone who's experienced wolf hunting, there's those moments when you're trying to call in wolves and they just don't close in the distance. You know, that first time, like you said, there was stupid wolves. There was a lot of them. What's happened? The stupid ones got killed off. Yeah. Now I know, I know as soon as Oregon and Washington open their season up, it's going to be the same ordeal where that first year, there's going to be a lot of people killing wolves that first couple of years. Then after that, you got only the smart wolves and they still reproduce quickly. And the thing is with those alpha males and alpha females, they teach the pups, you know, right. there's wildlife biologists that do studies on wolves in Alaska and the, and those alpha male and alpha females will teach the pups how to avoid trap lines. You know, they, wow. you know what I mean? Like they're, they're like you said, they're one of the most intelligent animals in North America. I can't think of another animal even comparative to that. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. How did you get into wolf hunting? How did I? Well... For revenge, really. <laughs> <laughs> so what what did what did a wolf ever do to you? Yeah, well, they ruined my hunting spots. But more yeah. than that, I th- with the it really started in my teens. I you know I grew up in a I'll say just we had the best of both worlds. I mean, we had elk, moose, muleys, whitetail, black bear. I mean, hunting here and, and getting general tags every single year, I, I literally felt like I lived, but even, you know, one of those things where you don't really know how good you have it until you lose it. That's pretty much what I grew up as. And, and I didn't do sports in high school or anything like that. I was really addicted to hunting. Um, so I, I put my whole energy into that. My dad is an obsessive hunter too. He He's a big time elk hunter, um, owns his own logging job. So he uh, took a lot of time off taking me out in the mountains. I mean, he was calling elk in front of me at a very early age before I was even of age to hunt. I just watched him pull back his bow on bull elk and shoot him and stuff. And, you know, I was tracking blood trails with my dad before I was even of age to hunt, you know, just following him and, and his hunting adventures. And I think our whole family just got hooked. You know what I mean? Just we all got hooked and not just hunting, but shed hunting too. So we were doing all of it. And if I would, yeah, there was always something to hunt or something to shed hunt any time of the year. And 
I'm, I'm very obsessive with wildlife. You know, I love wildlife and I'd always just like being in the mountains and seeing wildlife. And I think where it really started was, um, I'd like to say it was 2006 was when the first time I truly understood the wolf or not understood, but my experience being around wolves. Cause before that we never had that. We had mountain lions and bears and some coyotes and we knew the importance of predator management. I was always taught that, but you know, I never really saw the impact when a mountain lion moved into a Canyon. You know what I'm saying? Like 2006 it, is pretty early in the story of, of wolf recovery in Montana, outside of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. The first wolf I ever saw in Montana, I think was in, uh, well, it, it was in 2009, right when they opened the first season. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, we, we had an area in our, and it came from Montana side. So by the way, so it wasn't a Canadian wolf. It was, it had to be a transplant Montana. And so there's this one mountain range that it hit quick, you know, 2006, we had them. And even some of the, the wildlife biologists and stuff were still not hundred percent admitting that we had official packs in our area yet. But at that time we were, we got into our mule deer area. This is an area that we we've killed big bucks in and I've watched my brother take big bucks. And it's just one of those areas we always want to go to because we we see a lot of animals, you know, a lot of muleys. And we got up there one day and we were glassing and there was just nothing, absolutely nothing. And we just thought, you know, it could have been, did we get up there late or are the deer just bedded down? Is there a storm coming through? Why, why is nothing moving? And so we sat there and waited around and my brother had this idea like, well, why don't we just, we're, you know, we're in our teens at that time. He's like, why don't I just shoot at that rock and see if I can get something to jump out of the timber, you know, cause we're just seeing all these little timber patches and he that's just a shot. classic teenage boy hunting tactic right that's, there. I like that's that. What I'm saying. I wouldn't do that now. That's not the type of hunter I am, but as a kid, you do stupid crap like that. Yeah, totally. And so my brother shot across the Canyon and a, one of the, that's where the size of a wolf really hit me. A big black wolf just jumped out of the timber and just ran down the Canyon. It was 400 yards away and you could see everything of that dog. Like that is one big dog just running right down the Canyon. And, and we were just blown away. We, we had no clue what we just witnessed or what we just saw. But after 2006, you know, there was a big wintering range too, not just the muleys, but the moose would go in winter and we would count. I mean, it's, I'm not even exaggerating when I'm saying this, there was a time we were sitting on our snowmobiles and just counting moose in the winter. And we saw a little over a dozen bulls, not cows, bull moose wintering in there. When they all shed, we'd go in there, just clean house on paddles. We'd load the snowmobiles up and drive off. Um, but that wolf pack went in there and within two, not even, it wasn't even a long period of time. This was within a two year period of time. And that area just got completely wiped out. With, yeah. And it just, and that's where it started. And, and then ever since then, it was just the same pattern where, uh, you know, that wasn't our only hunt spot. We had several others, but as soon as a wolf pack would move in, the wildlife moved out and it just kept on going on and on and on. And finally they did have that season that open, but it got shut down shortly after. And so I really never got to hunt wolves until 2011 when it stayed open. Cause it, yeah, it did get shut down. Didn't it back then it was like 2009. I don't know, man, because they, they opened that season in Montana 
And I thought, well, I'm not even going to waste my money on that, you know? And I went out elk hunting with my buddy, Adam, and he had a, a long boat. It was the last weekend of the archery season. And there were some grizzlies around. So I had a 4570 um, with iron sights and we're sitting on a ridge first thing in the morning. And uh, I looked down in the bottom of this draw and I didn't even want to say what I was seeing because I didn't want to be the guy that, that cried wolf when it was actually a coyote or something, you know? Yeah. And uh, you know, five of them came out. Uh, one was black and one was pure white. And uh, I said, Adam, there's some wolves down below us. He's like, well, let's call them in. And so we, we got out our coyote calls and we squeaked at them and got these wolves to run into like 150 yards. And it was, it was a crazy hunting experience. And we were kind of rattled by it to be completely honest. You know, when they committed Adam with his longbow turned around and uh, he, he quit calling and he goes, don't let him get me. (laughs) And uh, we just went, we quit elk hunting for the day. We just went back to the wall tent and ate many Snickers and kind of giggled about what a crazy experience it was. I went straight into the Marine Corps after that. So I don't really know what happened um, kind of with those lawsuits and, and everybody trying to shut down the wolf season. But in 2011, like you say, um, it did open for good in Idaho. And, you know, they've only increased hunter and trapper abilities to, to take more wolves as they've recognized, you know, how big of a problem this is. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad that it's, the laws and regulations, I feel like now are in the right hands, you know, before they were in the wrong hands and it wasn't people, there were people that weren't even doing the studies, you know, it was felt like a lot of the laws and regulations were built based on feelings rather than the actual facts. But I think Idaho and Montana both did it right. And what I mean by that is I look at Wyoming and they're just like, shoot them all after the first season was open. Well, then they lost their privileges quickly after, you know, Idaho was just like, they start off with, all right, we'll start off with two wolves a year. If, if we see the population population still increasing, we'll just slowly increase the limit. And so I felt like Idaho and Montana was right on that part. You know, like they didn't, they showed that we were, you know, in some way being responsible. I'm not saying anything wrong with Wyoming. I freaking love Wyoming. And I, in some ways I love that mentality, but sometimes that mentality doesn't get things done you know, in that way, like we had to kind of work with those environmental groups in some way to show like, look, we're responsible. We know what we're doing. We're taking care of the predator problem. We're, we're still doing our studies. There's still wolves running here with collars on them. You know, we're, we're being responsible about the matter. And, and so I felt like that in that sense, it was working, but, um, but anyways, yeah, 2011. That was when I first harvested my. That was my first wolf I shot. I was like, "Enough." Oh, you got one that first year. Yeah, yeah, I did. Nice. And tell my, me the story. Yeah, so that first year, my sister came up from college at that time, and she's like, "I want to fill my my deer tag, you know, for film like you know the freezer in college." And so she came back up, um, and I was just taking her out hunting. And the wolves, it was just the same wolf pack that I was hearing. I kept going out deer hunting for myself before she came up. There's this wolf pack just almost every day. You open the pickup door and you're walking past wolves howling. And, and this is the, my mistake. And a lot of other hunters make this mistake where they they're so focused on the animal they're trying to pursue that they ignore the wolves. You know, that was a mistake I used to make where I'd hear wolves howling. I'm like, oh, I'm not wolf hunting today. I'm deer hunting. 
And, you know, for me now, I'm like, okay, got to always be an opportunist, right. When it comes to wolves, but okay. I won't, I won't get off topic there. So we, we went in there and we just, I borrowed a friend's predator call. Well, there's a howl. I had this howl recording and I just went up there and howled and called the whole pack in. And, <laughs> and so I made a, I shot one at 400 yards and there was a really nice, but oh, it was painful. So there was a gray one and a black one running out in a cut and the whole pack was home behind him. And my dad whistles and the black one stops behind the tree and the gray one stops in the opening. And I was like, I wanted the black one, but it's like, whatever, it's a wolf. And so I shot the gray one and the black one ran off. And uh, so I still ended up with a wolf that day. And then the following day we went back and we were trying to call on that wolf pack again. And this time my sister was in line. I'm like, you know what? Screw this deer hunt. Let's kill wolves. And so she was in line. We we're calling the wolves and you're hearing them howling. They're coming closer and closer and closer. And then the Mac daddy, the alpha male held way in the far back, his big howl and the whole pack left and went back to him. It was almost like he remembered what happened the day before and just kind of, you know, he was the one with the brains. So don't go back. Remember what happened yesterday. So anyways, that year was insane for wolves. I mean, we were driving and seeing, you could road hunt wolves back then. Like you could drive the roads and you're bumping wolves as you're driving. And that was the worst I've ever seen a wolf population ever be. I haven't seen it get that bad since then, but it's still bad and they still need managed. But everybody, I think during that time, nobody knew what they were doing. I didn't know what I was doing as a hunter. Trappers didn't know what they were doing. So we all had to go through this very awkward learning curve and how to manage this predator that has been thrown in our lap. You know what I mean? Like we've seen the damage they're doing and we want to manage it, but we just felt like our hands are tight. It's not like a mountain line where you can, you know, you can find the tracks and let the hounds on it. It's, it wasn't like that. Wolves are just, it's a completely different animal you're hunting. You well, and I'd like to point out a couple of things with that story that you just told. One, when people first started hunting them again in the lower 48, there were some easy opportunities, but two, they learned very, very quickly and they remember there's no animal that I've ever come across on any continent that is harder to hunt than a wolf. They are so smart. They've seen every trick out there and it's incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult. And that's why I'm so excited to talk with you about it because it seems like you've cracked the code and uh, I kind of want to get a glimpse into that and, uh, and hear some more of these stories about, about your evolution with wolf hunting and how you learned and, and the mistakes that you made along the way and, and then the victories as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was just the learning curve since then, you know, I, there were several times, I think anyone who's experienced wolf hunting, there's those moments when you're trying to call on wolves and they just don't close in the distance. You know, that first time, like you said, there was stupid wolves. There was a lot of them. What's happened? The stupid ones got killed off. Yeah. Now, I know, I know as soon as Oregon and Washington open their season up, it's going to be the same ordeal where that first year, there's going to be a lot of people killing wolves that first couple of years. Then after that, you got only the smart wolves and they still reproduce quickly. And the thing is with those alpha males and alpha females, they teach the pups. You know, right. there's wildlife biologists that do studies on wolves in Alaska and the, and those alpha male and alpha females will teach the pups how to avoid trap lines. You know, they, wow. 
you know what I mean? Like they're, they're like you said, they're one of the most intelligent animals in North America. I can't think of another animal even comparative to that. Um, so, but yeah, you could say that with time and time again, a lot of it had to do with our numbers. So I had a lot of trial and error, but it came to a point to where I was finally able to not just call them in, but to actually, you know, locate them, call them and execute them and, and actually kill them, you know, more than just one wolf. And to actually do that again and again, I, even on the same pack that's already wised up to my original calls, I have additional techniques that I've been, that I've, that I've learned and how to continue pursuing the pack and taking out, you know, taking down as many dogs as I can. And so, yeah, a lot, I got a lot of stories. I don't know which stories you want to hear, but I did also have one with my bow. I had, a, I had an archery experience myself where I stuck three wolves with a bow. Really? Yeah. And Tell me about that. Give me some details. Yeah. So that was a crazy one where I was, I was just elk hunting and this was one of the areas I had a, I had a dandy bull that I saw the year before and he was a, he had stickers just like a big seven by seven bull elk that I really wanted to harvest. And it was one of those areas the wolves haven't hit hard yet. There was a couple wolf sightings, but it was, they didn't really claim that as a territory yet, but I'd say this was the first year they decided to move in. And I, I was hunting that area and the areas I normally see elk, they just weren't there. And I was cow calm, bugling, no answer, no response. And usually, I don't know if you do the same thing, but when you're walking through thick brush, do you uh, let out cow calls to cover up your sound? So here's the thing with that. And, and I, I get really particular about elk hunting, but elk tend to vocalize when they're in the open and their, their cue to each other that there's danger in the area when they're in the open is that they'll quit calling. And you'll notice that if you roll up onto, on a herd of elk that are out in a meadow or something that they're very, very vocal. Um, and when they, when somebody sees you, even before a bark, they'll all quit. But when they're in tight timber, they don't do that. And the cue that there's danger and that they need to be alerted in tight timber is to start calling. So I used to do that to kind of cover up sound. I don't do it anymore. Um, but that's just my take on elk. Right. And I think every region is different just because our area is probably 98% timber. We don't have any. Yeah. You live in a rainforest. Yeah. I, rain, I live in a rainforest. So all our calling is in the timber. Yep. Um, and very few times do I even see an elk in an opening at least in this time, they're also pulling the wintering ranges or in the logging cuts, but, but yeah, so usually what I'll do, um, and like I said, every hunter has their own way of doing things and it works. Um, so I, I just, I was just setting a cow call just to cover my sound, you know, I'm, I'm breaking branches, I'm busting through brush, but I had that feeling that something was staring at me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like that, like my hair kind of stood up. I'm just like, what's going on? You know, like I could just, I felt like eyes were on me and I looked to my left, I got this wolf just trotting in at me and all I could do is just pull an arrow, you know, get an arrow knocked and pull it back. No time. I had a GoPro in my pocket. I never keep a GoPro in my pocket anymore. Now I keep it on my head so that I can just push record. But in this situation, like I said, this was a learning curve when it came to that. But anyways, I just pulled back my bow and he was just, I mean, just a couple steps away, not that far. And I just let an arrow fly right under the chin, stuck him right here in the chest. He took a couple leaps, tipped over. The rest of the pack came out and was sniffing him out, trying to figure out what was going on. And I just knocked another arrow, pulled back, stuck a second one. 
And then the, the wolves just jumped to the side and we're looking around, knocked another arrow, pulled back, stuck a third one. And that third one looked like a good shot. I just wasn't able to find that wolf just because it ran. It's that, have you hunted in that red huckleberry brush? I have. And yep. it, it rained that morning. So it was not just red brush. It was wet red brush. And it just ran in that red brush. And I just was looking in there and I was a hard, having a hard time finding blood. I spent about an hour and a half trying to find blood on that third one. Um, but I wasn't able to find that one, but I, I saw the hit. I saw where the blood was pouring out. The wolf was acting very, uh, hit as well. He was stumbling, you know what I mean? Sure. And, and so I was like, that's a dead wolf. And so I thought I had three, that one had to have died in there somewhere, but I, I did have two pretty much stacked on top of each other, but that was just one of those moments too, where like my, I wanted to shout an excitement and cry at the same time because I was filled with excitement and fear all at once because this is my first time actually really experiencing something like that. And all those shots, I mean, most of those shots were all under 10 yards. Wow. Know? Like really close. I think that, well, the last one was probably more like 20. That last That's crazy but dude, he, but he still ran past me. And uh, so it's just, that was one of those weird moments too. And I had a lot of moments like that, but I can't tell you how many more moments I've had that since then, but I think I've called them wolves so many times close blank that it doesn't, I don't fear it anymore. I just expect it. And I think when you spend time with a certain animal like that, I think, you know, you see those guys on shark week and they, they live around sharks and you're like, that guy's crazy. Well, I think that guy eventually knows, you know, he spends enough time around sharks. I guess he knows the next reaction the shark's going to do if you do this or that. And I'm not saying I'm like that, but I, I'm saying that I've gotten so comfortable with wolves that I know when I'm in danger and when I'm not, Yeah. You know, when I'm calling in a wolf pack and they're coming running in at me, like I'm not, I don't fear for my life. Like I used to, but I'm like, sure you're I, very excited. Oh, it's the adrenaline rush is nothing like you've ever had. Like when it comes to elk hunting, like I, I love, I'm a, I'm an elk hunting addict, a mule deer addict, whitetail, most, I mean, anything like I love to hunt. But there is nothing out there like calling in a wolf pack. And like I kid you not, like I if it's like I have lots of dreams of wolf hunting. Like it sticks to my head for a very long time. Probably the worst dreams I have are the ones I miss the wolves. You know? <laughs> I actually had a dream a couple of days ago, actually, where I was like, I was sitting there and I had a dream that I pulled my gun up and my scope fell off <laughs> right before I was going to shoot. You know, you have these dreams and you're like, I can't, you know, you wake up in a deep sweat. Like I can't let something like that happen to me, but um, yeah, go, go tighten your bases, make sure everything's to spec. Right. Right. But you know, over time I've, I've learned in what I would consider as the perfect wolf gun too. And I consider my gun right now is the gun. Exactly. I built this gun specifically for wolves but I still know that there's some things I can tweak to make it better. Um, but the one thing that I changed, so I think if you were a first time wolf hunter, you would think that the AR, you know, having an automatic where you could just throw a bunch of lead muzzle break, that's going to be your, that's going to be your gut, your wolf killer. And come to find out that isn't your wolf killer. In my opinion, maybe there's guys that are out there that are, really good shots with an automatic, but I feel like 
you know, my hunting rifle, I'm a really good shot at, and I'm more of a make every shot count. I don't like spreading lead and wounding a bunch of animals. And my thing is I'm more or less, I like to kill. No, I don't like to just kill the wolves. I like the rest of the pack not to know what I'm doing. I like to kill a wolf at a time. And as long as the rest of the pack hasn't wised up to me yet, then I can still call them in again. Sure. And you just have to get rid of the witnesses. You have to just consistently work on the pack like that. And, you know, we've had it where I've called the same pack in, you know, three times in three different days in the week, the same pack. And you can't do that using the same call. Sure. Of course they, not. They wise up to those. But, you know, like I said, I, over time and lots of trial and error, I mean, we, I feel like, like you said, we've come up with a really, really good formula that works that anytime I'm actually hearing wolves howling, like I'm very confident that I'm going to have a shot on a wolf that day. Like, I'm like, okay, like, a wolf is going to get a bullet today, either a bullet or he's going to get shot at, but something's happening today. Like I know how to call these things in, but the, there's more than just that, that I teach in the courses. I'm also teaching you how to find wolves. Cause that's actually the toughest thing is finding the wolf pack. But before we get ahead of ourselves, what we're talking about is a wolf hunting course that, that you created that people can, can sign into, right? Yes. Yes. That's correct. Yeah. So tell me, tell, kind of give me the, the foundation of what that is. Yeah. So, so in this course, what you do is you would, uh, you know, let's say you, you're taking the course, you made the purchase, you're in the course, what to expect. What I'm doing is I'm teaching you everything. First of all, about the wolf. When I first got in the wolf hunting, I couldn't find anything on the internet about wolves, like nothing. And some people overcomplicate the wolf pack. Like if you actually tried looking on those environmental sites and stuff, they're, they're talking about alphas and omegas and, and all these, like they make the pack, the organization of the pack really complicated. The, just the way wolves act. And, and what I try to do is I try to simplify the wolf, teach you everything that you need to know about the wolf, why it does what it does, it's, it's seasonal patterns from January all the way into December, you know, for the entire year. And more or less, I, I teach it. Yeah, I'm, what I'm doing is I, first of all, I just teach you everything about the wolf. And then from there, I'm teaching you month by month and how I like to hunt wolves and, and some hunting tactics that have worked for us. The other thing I'm also teaching is, well, we do teach, we do, although it's a hunting course, my brother has had some really good trapping success. And again, same thing. He's dealt with the trial and error. It took an entire year and he didn't trap a single wolf. And then as soon as he trapped one wolf, then the rest came, you know, came pretty easy for him. And so he goes through some of his techniques and how he likes to trap wolves. Um, a small section of that, but I, I like to just give everybody, you know, as much of information as I possibly can there. So if people get into this course, do they have to buy a new subscription every year? Yeah. So it's, it's a full year course. So you get okay. into it for an entire year and, and these are all videos where I'm showing you how to do things. And that's and like with me, I'm a visual learner. So if somebody's sitting in a classroom and just talking, 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 I can kind of daze out at times, you know? Um, but the one thing I do in this course too is I'm actually showing you step by step and how to hunt wolves. And so I'm actually picked. So 
you probably watched some of our um, stuck in our YouTube videos. When I create a YouTube video, I'm making it entertaining, right? So we may have a, a wolf hunt that I filmed for an entire hour. Like I probably have an hour's worth of footage from when we started wolf hunting to finish. And that could be an hour footage of a week's time. I break that hour and I make it into a 10 minute episode. And so when I break that into a 10 minute episode, there's a lot you're not seeing. I'm trying to make the video entertaining, but at this point, there's a lot of things that I'm doing, a lot of skills and tactics I'm not showing just because it's boring. So when you're doing this course, I'm not making this course entertaining. I'm not throwing fireworks and stuff. I'm actually teaching you step-by-step step in how to hunt wolves. And I actually, what was really unique, so this year, um, so right before elk season started, I'm like, all right, I was already starting the wolf course. I was already putting it together. I was like, I'm going to do step-by-step step in how to find a wolf pack and execute it. And I did that in two days. Wow. Yeah. So I went out on the mountain and, and I, and I wasn't expecting it to be two days. Usually I expect it four days or possibly more, but I, I went on the mountain. I found wolf sign. I explained where I would expect these wolves to be this time of the year. And then the following morning I found them. And then I showed how I, I even showed on the map and stuff and how I'm going to do the hunt. I'm like, this is, this is what the wind's doing. This is what this doing. This is my plan. This is why. And then I went in and I killed four wolves that night and got it all on video solo. And, and that right now is the only way you can view that video itself is on the course. I'm only going to, how much does the course cost? It's 447. 447. Yes. Um, And that buys you a year of learning how to hunt and trap wolves. Yes. Cool. Well, you're going to spend more than that. The first time you go out and try, you're going to spend over thousands, thousands. I plural. I've spent a lot of money hunting wolves, you know, even trapping wolves. These guys that are trapping wolves for, for footholds. I mean, you're, you're talking about 500 bucks or possibly more in just footholds. You know what I mean? With traps and yeah, lots of time, lots of time, lots of money. You're going to be saving yourself in the long run. And people flinch at that, at that kind of cost on education all the time, but they don't flinch at all when that's the cost of a pack or, you know, something like that. And they don't, they don't realize like your knowledge is more important than any piece of gear you could possibly bring with you. That is true. Yeah. People, no, that's true. And that's kind of a, a new concept that people have to learn, unfortunately, um, and anyone that's actually wolf hunted has told me that that course is worth it. Yeah. yeah I actually have already put in the time, but those that are first getting into it, it's like, Oh, I don't, I don't know, but it's all right. And I want everybody to think about it. I don't want you to break the bank, but I know it's going to be worth it for you. If you really want to get a wolf, you want to invest time in the hunting wolves. This is going to save you money in the long run. And it's just going to give you a foundation. You know, I'm giving you a decade worth of information that we have learned wolf hunting. And I am, I'm very successful in hunting wolves. I do it every year and I'm taking down quite a few. Tell me a little bit about the foundation for wildlife management. And so the foundation for wildlife management was started just south of us. And it's a reimbursement program where if you are a member and you harvest a wolf, 
you get up between five hundred dollars. Um, I know right now they have it up to two twenty five hundred, so like two thousand five hundred dollars in certain units. Um, there was some grant money, but that changes based on funds. But never there's a time where that that money's under five hundred bucks. It's always going to be over over that. So if somebody takes your course and then they go out and shoot a wolf and they're part of the foundation for wildlife management, they just made money. Yeah, they pay, they got it paid for. And on top of that, you got a fur that can be worth, I mean, I've sold fur for 500 bucks. Sure. And yeah. you got skull and I got people always asking me, I didn't realize how, how, how valuable is a skull. Like I've actually used to throw away wolf skulls after I was done. And I would have bought that for 200 bucks. I'm like, what? <laughs> I missed out on that opportunity, but usually it's, I'll say about a hundred bucks per skull that, you know, on average, yeah. but that, I mean, don't, you'll get it paid for, you know, with a, with a pelt, with the course. And I'm not advocating for people to hunt so that they can make money off the animal. That's not part of the North American model. Um, and it's not, it doesn't lead to good stuff in the long, long term. The reason that the Foundation for Wildlife Management is doing this is to reimburse people for the costs that they're incurring and in going out and wolf hunting. And furthermore, the reason that they're doing it is because a lot of the ungulate populations in wolf country now are suffering really badly. So there's several biologists out there who I've talked to in the last year who have told me that moose have 10 years left in the state of Idaho that in one decade, there will not be a moose left in the entire state. And that's a tragedy. And the primary reason, not the only reason, but the primary reason of that is wolves. Yeah. So if we don't get after it and really, really keep this population limited as much as possible and get it to the point that wildlife managers in the state want it to be at, which is less than it is now, then we're not going to have those native species like Shiraz moose anymore. They're, they're going to be gone. That's it. Can I show you something real quick? Totally. I'm going to show you what shed hunting was like when I was a kid. So look around the room. You see all those sheds, all those moose sheds. Holy cow. That's amazing. And Keep folks going. can't see this right now, but this, okay. this entire room is covered in moose paddles. Look at these. Those are all Boone and Crockett bulls. So I've sold we have sold all the little ones. These are all Boone and Crockett. This actually right here is the world's largest Shira's moose shed right there. Wow. That's amazing. That is what we, this has all been from home. We found yeah. all these next to home. We used to pick up, I remember, go, you know, getting out of high school, going up in the mountains, and my brother and I would come off with more moose paddles than we can carry each on some days. You can't yeah, do that. That's anymore. crazy. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's, that's one thing, right? Uh -huh. And there's, there's lots of ways to value an animal, but the real value to an animal is the role that it plays in its niche in the ecosystem. And there's all kinds of extra cool things like finding a moose paddle. Like that's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing to find a moose paddle. I've never done it. I found multiple bull moose deadheads, but I've never found a paddle and I don't expect to, I'm not a lucky person. And honestly, at the rate that, that moose are going away, it, it's probably just going to be something that we, that we tell grandkids about. When wolves first started really pushing into Idaho, we started getting a moose population here in Northeast Oregon. And at one time, we got around 70 moose um, living in a few different canyons here in this part of the state. 
And there had been moose here historically, like back in the day, and then some that traveled through periodically. Um, but this was a new thing, and it was very exciting for a lot of people. However, for, for wildlife managers, it was not really cause for excitement because I think that they knew more than anybody else that it was, it was temporary. And unfortunately, uh, those moose are almost completely gone now, and it happened so quickly that 99% of the population of Oregon doesn't know that we ever had a moose here. And, you know, it, it, it's a real shame because we've got the habitat that used to be here. It would have been a, a wonderful thing to keep them. But the, the reason that they got here was wolf pressure. Those wolves came after them. And uh, now the wolves have eaten almost all of them. And that sucks. It does. And but here, here's a little bit of hope, at least a little bit of hope. So there's two areas. They actually even shut this area down from there used to be a moose drying. They don't even have a moose drying in there anymore. And so for a long time, because the wolves got so bad, they had to shut the area down. So this year, this year I went in there and I actually picked up probably close to 13, 14 paddles out of there. And it was like, to me, that was proof that predator management works. Because okay. So had there been a lot of wolf hunting going on in that area? Oh, more than you can imagine. Some yeah. of the wolf trappers in there have like, they've already, like if you were to give them a head count, um, I'd say there was, well, actually between, there's two guys that trap that area pretty heavily. And between both of them, they got over a hundred wolf heads. So that's, that sounds un, like an unreal number, but that's the truth. So they really, really knocked them down hard. And the reality is they didn't even know there was that many wolves here. You know sure. what I mean? They only told yeah. us that there was three, like at least us, they try to tell us that there's only three packs living in our area. But then when you find out that there's over 50 wolves in our unit getting t- taken out every year, that kind of got them thinking, whoa, there's more than we thought. You know what I mean? Well, and they're such a difficult animal to count under under the best of conditions. And that's another problem that we're facing in Oregon right now is they built a a population estimate model around being able to visually observe every single animal. And that's all fine and dandy in Eastern Oregon where you can catch them, you know, out in the snow, outside of timber, you can track them if you've got a sunny day, you know, out of a super cup or whatever, and you can lay eyes on a lot of them. But as wolves have expanded into Western Oregon and to Northern California, there's a tight timber canopy over all of the terrain. So now you can no longer count them from aircraft. Well, so what do you do? Hang game cameras, um, start taking fecal samples. You know, it, it's, it's a situation where you have to estimate the population with models and we don't have enough experience or background to build good models around it. So it, it, it's a really, really difficult thing to count wolves accurately because they're extremely difficult to hunt. And a portion of that count is, is hunting them in a way so that you can actually lay eyes on them or, or make your estimate somehow. Yeah. And here's a good example, too, like you brought up, too. Well, the problem is, is their population um, expands so quickly. You can't keep count. And here's this area is an example where every wolf trapper in this area, they trapped out this pack completely entirely and so they felt like that pack was in, was completely gone i i was even convinced there because i was up there all winter long and i did not see a, another wolf trap there one they had their same routes and they just stopped seeing tracks and as a very that particular mountain i'm talking about 
has a lot of roads. So it's pretty obvious if a wolf track crosses it, a lot of cat hunters are running in stuff. So there's a wolf there. It would have been known. So everybody was convinced the wolves were gone out, at least out of that particular area. Well, that's where I killed those four wolves this fall. And and there was more wolves hounding back. All it took was a, was a couple wolves to move in and have a litter of pups and boom, you got another pack. Boom. That's, that's how fast it is. And, and these, we have some really skilled, like I was telling you, we've got some really skilled wolf trappers up here and hunters, you know, myself and some other guys. And we're putting the, you know, the knockdown on these wolves. And some of these areas we're convinced like, oh yeah, we got them under control. Then the next year, it's almost like, where in the heck did this pack come from? <laughs> it's just, yeah. it's this never ending. You have to always be on top of it. Even those areas, uh, those areas I'm telling you are recovering. Those wolf trappers, if they miss one year, it's just going to flip back to where it was because a new pack yeah. moves in. We, we're always getting these wolves from Washington. We're getting these ones with Washington fish and game collars that are coming through. We did have that. Uh, we had a little small portion of caribou left living in Idaho. And my brother trapped one of those wolves that was killing that last herd. And my friend did too. And the wildlife biologist said, well, I'm glad you guys did it. Cause if it wasn't you, we had to go in and kill them because they were actually killing the caribou. That's how we knew. Well, then here's a you know, long story short caribou went extinct and got to television and guess what it was climate change they named a lot of other things except of what we saw there was a true wolf pack hunt you know hitting that herd and when we sat into the meetings with the wildlife biologist they were telling us the predation problems they were facing there was wolves mountain lions they said the 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 calves only had a 12 percent chance of survival their first year well if you only have 13 caribou left you're not going you're going to have possibly one calf a year survive in that herd that's that's doomed for extinction but the news and, didn't and that's that. another example of a of a wildlife population that's native that was very special the only caribou living in the lower 48 mm-hmm. still you know there used to be a population in maine but this is all we had left and it was a very special thing that people were generally unaware of and then wolves roll in after they've been gone for a long time. And now we no longer have any caribou. Like that population is gone forever. It is. And were they struggling? Yes. But when we're talking about struggling, they just, they just flatline on that little number between 20. You know what I mean? They did vary if some years good, some years bad. But then when the wolves moved in, it was the same thing. Two years, boom, they were gone. It was just like my whole life. I always knew about the 20 hurt, you know, the group of 20 caribou that lived in our mountain range here. And it's just like, in some years it was 15, some years it was 30. It just kind of, you know, bounced back and forth. But like I said, Wolfpack moved in, vanished. They're gone. And then they tried to move in and at least, I think they grabbed, there was one left up there with a the collar and they grabbed it and moved it to a Canadian herd up north. But the, the Canadians up there, they actually do some aerial shooting and and they said that their caribou herd actually increased 40% in that area because they were managing the wolf numbers. And, and the same thing, like you can you can be sad about all those wolves are aerial shooting, but they reproduce so fast they come back. And so it's just a like really if people think they're gonna go extinct, that's that's not what's gonna happen. 
No, not even close. So they're they're reproducing at a rate of around 30% per year. And we've seen them do this in several different ecosystems, everywhere from the canyons of, of the Frank Church wilderness to the Yellowstone to, you know, the, the area that you live in that receives 2 billion inches of rain and snow every year. So 30% per year means that, you know, that population is like what doubling every three years. It's crazy. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting double the wolves in that area because it can only sustain so many. And, and the packs have a social tolerance that makes, you know, younger males and, and some females get kicked out. So that population expands. And that's why, you know, within a short period of time, we went from the nine mile wolves in Northern Montana and the Yellowstone wolves and the Frank church wolves to wolves going all the way to Southern Colorado Northern California and everywhere in between. Like it, it, it just, it's a population that is going to explode and expand and continue moving and continue adapting to all these different environments and wherever they go, there's damage that occurs because these animals are not used to wolf predation anymore because we haven't had them around for over a century. Mm -hmm. And and the thing is, too, if you actually go in certain areas like Alaska and Canada, you know, I spent a lot of time in Alaska just because I have my brother-in-law and sister. You'll notice there's a lot of areas that I would call, I don't know if this is the right term for it, but I call them dead zones, where there's actually just thousands of thousands of acres of just nothing, no wildlife, no nothing's using it. And I've seen this happen with the wolf here, too. And I think eventually, you know, if you were to say, what if, you know, people just stand back and let nature do its thing. And, you know, honestly, just talking to certain other, you know, talking to some Canadians and stuff too, because I haven't been, you know, I haven't lived long enough to see a full downward, you know, um, up and down when it comes to wolves wiping everything out, they have to starve. And then, then the numbers come back or they have to leave because there's no food source. Well, that's uh, not going to happen here today because uh, we have livestock. So once they run out of, you know, elk and moose and deer, they just move to livestock. And yeah, then, you, then you have all that turmoil and conflict that occurs with, uh, with cattle and sheep producers. Um, and as they wow. get a tolerance to be around people, then you get even more issues where, you know, now these wolves are following you back to your truck or killing your, your baby border collie puppy off your porch. Um, you know, these are things that are happening increasingly as those wolves get a tolerance because they're primarily preying on livestock as they deplete the, the, uh, the wild prey population. Exactly. And that's the same. We deal this with, with the, the grizzly too, because you can't manage the grizzly here. So it's the same thing we deal with here too. Like, right. You know, same thing we were discussing when, when they lose their food source, typically in nature, they starve. But yeah, like you said, we got the livestock. So that's the next resort. Their last resort is them starving. They're going to, when they get desperate, they don't just go into livestock. They get dangerous. Mountain lions are the same way. They get dangerous when they're low on food source. That's when, you know, like that's when you get a lot of attacks from people. Mountain lions are killing people. I mean, that's the same thing with wolves. That's the same thing with bears. You have to manage it. You have to manage predator populations and keep things in balance. And, and it's not your dog. Like it's, it's not mythical. It's an animal. It's a predator. It kills stuff to make a living. It's super good at it. It's ruthless. You cannot anthropomorphize this animal. It's a wolf. And um, people, you know, 
they just have had bad information and and that's the only information that they have and i think that's why there's such a such an emotional response to it and uh, i just encourage people to open their mind a little bit and for those folks who are opposed to wolf hunting who are still hanging in on this podcast which i don't think there's probably very many of and just just do a little bit of research and and try to find information that doesn't necessarily support your own opinion and i encourage people to do that with with anything that's controversial like try and find the thing that doesn't support your opinion and and then see if that is correct information or not and that's how we learn like that's how we we strengthen our positions and strengthen our own minds exactly no and that's true there's even hunters out there that disagree with the management of wolves i that to me when environmentalist gets on and tries to, you know, gets on and death threats, whatever they, I can't argue with them. They are in their own little world. I'll never see them, but it's what really gets to me is when I actually have a hunter who hunts elk, who hunts deer, but he's never experienced a wolf problem. Yep. And so he's saying, well, because he hasn't experienced a wolf problem that I'm just making up excuses because I'm not killing animals anymore. The thing is, I'm filling my elk and mule deer tag every year still. That I just have to go back farther. I have to put in more miles. And to me, it's sad that I can't take my wife and children up in the mountains and show them the wildlife that I saw when I was a kid. That's what I'm sad about. Like, I want, I like to see balance in wildlife. I like to see nature be nature and do what it's supposed to do. Yeah. I don't like packing in the backcountry 15, 20 miles and not seeing an elk and not even seeing an elk track and the wallows getting grown up with, with cattails and nothing's using them anymore. Yeah. All the trails are grown up with green grass. But I'm like, there's no trails in the backcountry anymore that they use. Nothing's living back there. It's a dead yeah. zone. So, I mean, and that's unfortunate because I'm the only hunter back there. Nobody's been hunting back there. So right. anyways, Sorry. So every time I get my soapbox, you just have to tone me down a bit. Cause I, I just, no, I, I mean, I, I feel the same way. And, and it's, it's a really similar situation here. We just can't hunt wolves yet. No, and like, eventually we'll be able to. And when that happens and we need to learn how to do it effectively. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think the, the bottom line with all this is that wolf hunting is super exciting. It's a lot of fun. It's incredibly challenging. You're not going to, hurt the wolf population you are going to if you're effective help the native ungulate population so that the drawbacks to it is that you're going to take some heat from some people who don't understand but you'll also have the information now to be able to talk with them about it if they're willing to change their opinion in light of new evidence mm -hmm. and like i was saying too there's proof that it works you know i've seen it in areas i was telling you about moose yeah, uh, mule deer areas, some old mule deer, some of my old stomping grounds that I have said that, you know, disappeared. Well, I mean, they're coming back. I killed a real, actually, I killed my biggest bullhog this year. And it was in that area I was telling you about. I saw that first wolf in 2006. And like I said, I have avoided that area for several years since then because the wolves wiped it out. But with the management, numbers are coming back, not the same as they used to be, but better than before and you know and taking down that bull elk i did this year was proof of it you know that hey things are working predator management's working i'm seeing animals in areas that's been dead for a pretty long time and 
and in a sense with all the the guys that are involved i felt like i feel like every wolf pack at least in our area is counted for like we we're pretty aware of our wolves and which ones we have what's their routes and for me too just being the wolf hunter i am i'm pretty aware of what wolf pack to go after next you know like if if i if i had the time to go tomorrow there's a wolf pack in the back of my mind i i like I know where there's one right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Generally that I can go after. And so that knowledge is here now and we're doing good, but there's a lot of areas in the wilderness areas, like the Selway, the Bitterroot Wilderness, Low Low Selway, I, I already said Selway. Um, and even that Salmon area, Frank Church Wilderness. Um, there's these areas that trappers can't get to because it's just out of their way, you know, to, you know, to pack all that trapping gear is very difficult, but yeah. the hunt wolves, you can go as far back as you want to. Yeah. And these areas really need hunters. There's actually a lot of areas in Montana too. Montana trap. There's a lot of trapping rules still in Montana to where it makes it very difficult for a, for a Montana trapper to be effective in managing wolves, but the laws on hunting wolves are, are really good. You know, there, you can be effective in wolf hunting in Montana right now. And so yeah. areas like Montana are also really needed for wolf hunters. And, and like you said, it's fun. Like I actually originally started it just cause I had to, but after I've had several experiences, wolf hunting, it is addicting. Like after you have that, after you're calling your first wolf pack, you might end up skipping elk season. I I'm serious. Like I, oh, I, I yeah. <laughs> I, I believe it. Yeah. No, it, 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 it's an incredible thing. It's an incredible thing. And learning about it on the f- forefront is going to save you a lot of pain and, and money spent in the wrong direction on the back end. So mm-hmm. I encourage people to, to look into your course. Um, you. And I look forward to taking it myself. Thank you very much. Yes, I appreciate it. And yeah, we're all in it together. We're all trying to manage this predator and we all want the experience of hunting deer and elk. I think we you know, all of us getting in and just joining up. And that's what the foundation too is about as well. Just getting everybody yeah. involved and getting reimbursed. And yeah. So I'll, I'll have links in this podcast description to um, the master wolf hunting class to the foundation for wildlife management. I encourage you guys to, to enroll in that. Even if you don't live in Idaho or Montana, you know, it, it's, it's not a lot of money to get involved and, uh, and it does really support this wildlife population. If you ever plan on coming out and enjoying this wildlife or, or you just like knowing that it's there, this is real money that actually helps um, keep these animals around. So I encourage you to look into all of that and, uh, and to follow Stuck in the Rut because it's really good content. And it's fun to watch. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, if you ever get down in my neck of the woods, definitely look me up and, and I'm up there uh, in yours quite often too. So we'll have to, we'll have to get together and, and have a beer and, and uh, talk wolves a little bit more. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Let me know anytime. All right. Thanks, man. Hey, thanks. October, November, December, they're just the best months out of the year, right? Whether it's for work or hunting or fishing, the holidays, spending time with your family, just it's awesome, right? 
And we've got some nice cold mornings now, and you get to go out and have a, a warm drink in the duck blind or out on the hillside where you're glassing for, for mule deer or elk or, uh, or sitting in a tree stand waiting for a whitetail to come past. Or you're working on the job site and you get to take a break and have some nice warm coffee waiting for you. It's pretty nice. Having a cold drink at the end of the day, that makes everything a little bit better too. My favorite Stanley item right now is the 14-ounce titanium travel mug super lightweight because it's made out of titanium, so I'm willing to take it with me when I'm hunting, throw it in my pack. Fits in every cup holder out there, and it just seems to be the right amount of coffee. Uh, I, I like it. It's a really cool item, and it fits a niche that I didn't have uh, filled in like any of my other drinkware categories, I guess. Uh, if you're looking for a Christmas present for somebody or just a gift that you want to help them out with, I recommend this because it's pretty cool and it's something that they don't have already. The way most discount codes work, completely honest, is uh, if you use it, then whoever gave you that code gets a kickback. Now, I'm not a salesman and I want nothing to do with that. So I'm going to pass along to you a discount code that Stanley gave me because they're great supporters of this podcast and they're great supporters of this audience, which I love. So if you use the discount code SIXRANCH, the number six, the word ranch, you'll get 25% off anything you order from stanley1913.com. I get nothing back from that. I don't want anything. I just want to pass along some savings to you and save you a little bit of money and get you connected with this great company that makes really great products. And as we move through fall and, and get into winter and the holidays, just hope everybody's doing well and, and having a good time and, and that you get to Get out there and connect with nature and, and connect with your friends and family and have a nice warm drink while you're doing it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, Follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.